Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church weekly podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. All right, if you have a Bible, would you please open it with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians is a letter, an ancient letter that shows us how to apply the gospel in all aspects of life. 1 Corinthians teaches us how to maintain unity in the local church amidst a divisive world. It teaches us how to walk in holiness in an anything-goes culture. It shows us how to lead the church in church discipline. It shows us how to channel sexual desire in a way that God designed. It shows us how to worship when we gather together. It shows us how to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so let's explore the next part of Paul's argument to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So would you stand if you're willing and able, and I'll read chapter 5, which is comprised of 13 verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outsiders. Purge the evil person from among you, as the Scriptures say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. 
I will never forget the first time I was rebuked by someone who loved me. My brother took me to the Pioneer Restaurant in Wichita Falls, Texas. And somewhere between the chicken fried steak and the peach cobbler, my brother said to me, Blake, the life that you're living is not the life God has designed you to live. You're not walking in the light of the gospel. I was a pimply-faced eighth grader, and he was a college student. And I don't know if he intended the only part of that conversation 30 years later to be remembered was only that part, but I remember it almost word for word. And his words to me were painful because they were true. And they became incredibly powerful to me for what it produced in me down the road. What Brad shared with me was painful and powerful. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul moves us to a new topic that runs through the end of chapter 7, namely sexual immorality. And he starts with a case of incest. That is where a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, we don't exactly know what the relationship is precisely. We don't know if, as some scholars believe, this is his father's second wife recently divorced, if his father had died. We don't know if she was close to him in age. Paul seems to suggest that it's not a case of of adultery directly because of the Greek words that he uses. But his main concern, despite all of that, despite the sexual immorality that was going on in front of them was not primarily the sexual immorality first. It was that Paul wanted to talk to the church about church discipline. Now, like the children before you, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you to show a raise of hands if you've ever seen church discipline done in the church, but I would, I would hedge my bets to suggest that most of you probably have never seen it done in the church. Because it's hard, and it's messy, and it's dangerous, and people can get sued, and there's all this legal stuff that sometimes people bring into it. But picking up with verse 1, we see the pain and the power of church discipline. Have you ever been disciplined? Notice first that Paul teaches us, number one, Paul teaches us that the church must be disciplined. The church must be disciplined. Look at verse 1 with me. The case mentioned here in verse 1 is that a man has his father's wife. Leviticus 18.8 makes it very clear that incest is not God's design. And the Greek word that he uses here is not the word for adultery, which is moikai, but it is the word for sexual immorality more generally, porneia, from which we get the word pornography. And again, although it can't be proven, 
It can't be proven. Paul's use of this word suggests that it might not, it might not be a case of adultery for a whole host of scenarios. I mean, it was obviously sexual immorality, but maybe she wasn't still married to his father. We don't know. The point is, it doesn't matter. This kind of immorality was even too immoral for the immoral pagans in Corinth. And so before we move on to the text about church discipline, I just want us to say just for a second, like we see this case in Scripture, like Scripture, as Nathan Duke taught our, our youth a number of months ago, the Bible's not a PG book. And we see this case in Scripture and we go, whew, man, that is jacked up. That is messed up. And we tend, if we're not careful, we tend to just immediately start to, to look at that and go, my gosh, that's awful. But do you practice godly sexual behavior yourself? Have you ever joined your body to a prostitute? Do you pay for sexual fantasy with your money or with your time? Do you delight in the images of other people? Are you addicted to sex? Have you ever given into the temptation to entertain thoughts of an affair on your spouse? Are you delighting only in your spouse or practicing abstinence or celibacy? Are there sexual practices that you keep hidden from others? I mean, before we just jump off the ledge and go, oh my gosh, that's really awful, just take a look at your own heart. I have to take a look at mine. I've been spending all week in this passage. The role of the church is to shepherd and care for each other. And when there are such personal issues like sexual sin in the church, especially sexual sin, because the roots of sexual sin go so deep that in this case, in Corinth, Paul says, you've got to therefore deal with it. And because the roots of sexual sin go so deep, parents, you also have the responsibility to help your children deal with it. Parents, are you having conversations about sex with your children? Like moms and dads, like, have you talked together about how and when and where that you'll talk to your children about sex? Fathers, it's a great opportunity for you to take the lead in some small way about a subject you know well to talk to your wife about how you're going to talk to your children about sex. Because the truth is, if they don't hear it from you, they will hear it from the world. So don't think that my precious little pure child is not looking for that stuff because that stuff is looking for them. They know their age, whoever they are. They know the games they play. They probably know where they live. Your children may not be looking for that stuff. But that stuff is looking for your children. Recently in the Atlantic Monthly, Alan Jacobs, who's a professor of humanities at Baylor, that's the last I'm going to mention of Baylor today. <laughs> that game was so painful. He says this. He says, culture catechizes. Culture teaches us what matters and what views we should take about matters. People come to believe 
what they are most thoroughly and intensely catechized to believe. And that catechesis comes not from the church, but from the media that they consume, or rather the media that consume them. The churches have barely better than a snowball's chance in hell of shaping most people's lives. Because how do you get the catechesis of a people around all the media intake that we take so quickly and we just suck in? So moms and dads, this is not to make you feel guilty for being parents. You're good parents. You're good parents. But it is to say we got to fight together on how we talk to our kids about these issues. We have to be a church that says everything is open in our homes. Let's talk about it. Moms and dads, we want you to be the first place your kids go to talk about their sin struggles because you're saying, let's deal with it. You should know mommy's heart. You should know daddy's heart. Let's struggle with it together. The antidote is not fear or paralysis. It is learning how to talk to your children about even the most personal issues in light of the gospel. Catechize your children or the world will do it for you. Catechize your children or the world will do it for you. And has probably already begun. So, so Paul springboards from this very publicly known case of incest to their response. And he says in verse 2, and you are so loving and you're such a good shepherd and you called him out on his sin and you addressed him as a spiritual brother. No, he says, you're arrogant. Like, you're justifying this man's behavior. Ought you not rather to mourn? Like, Paul is horrified by this situation. Paul, who's in Ephesus, isn't even in Corinth. And he says, guys, it took me 10 seconds to hear about this from Chloe's people when they visited me to already pronounce judgment that this isn't right. It should have, it took me 10 seconds. It should have taken you two. You should call this man to repentance. And if he doesn't repent, you should remove him from your fellowship. And I don't know if it was the combination of like the, the spurious Greek thinking in Corinth that separates the body from the soul, this dualism, or if it was just bad teaching about what is allowed sexually in the church. We don't, we don't know. But it was all mixed up in such a way that even the leaders of the church were complicit and that they ignored it. They took what was something and added their own mess to it and made it even darker, so dark that Paul had to deal with the elders and the leaders of the church first before he could deal with the issue at hand, which he later deals with. And so it's staggering to me that in this very bold case of, of, of sin that's so public and obviously is well known, I mean, these, these, they're, boast, they're boasting about their, their freedom and grace, their freedom in Christ. And Paul goes, you're missing the whole point that Paul has to directly address them. And Paul says that whatever the reason, you ought to mourn, not be arrogant, and let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, Paul is especially aware of the dishonor that such behavior brings to the body of Christ. After all, the church is not just a collection of individuals. The church is a body of whom Jesus Christ is the head. And the reaction to those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ should be sorrow over someone's sin for which they are not repentant. 
And if they, can, they continue to be obstinate and unrepentant in that sin, then you remove them from fellowship because they have decided that they no longer want to uphold those vows. And you help them by removing them from the fellowship of your church. None of us stands alone and none of us lives to ourself. Each one of us, no matter how private you think your sin is, affects others. And that is why the church has to exercise discipline over its membership. Why do we exercise church discipline? That brings us to Paul's second point. Secondly, we, the church must be disciplined too in order to rescue the wayward sinner. Church discipline must be exercised in order to rescue the wayward sinner. Now, Paul's remedy for the situation is one long Greek sentence in verse 3 down through verse 5. And detractors are saying, look, Paul's away. He's not very concerned. No, Paul says, no, I am concerned. I've, I've already met out a judgment for this person. Listen, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Whoa! So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does that mean? Does Paul want this man to be oppressed by the devil? Does he want this man to be cast off forever? No. When he says that he's to be delivered over to Satan, he is to be cast out of the sphere of the church because the sphere of the world is the sphere in which Satan rules or expresses his influence. And Paul is saying, let him be cast outside of the protection of the body of Christ and let him be subject to the sphere of Satan's influence. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, so that he can come back in repentant. If he wants, let him have a dose of his own medicine, as it were, in order to bring this brother back in the church. Now, Every Bible-believing church can preach the argument of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The question is, how exactly do you do this? And I just want to walk you through the way that this church does church discipline. Every church has a way, whether they're figuring it out on a fly, on an index card in the pastor's office, or they have some way that has governed the way they do it for a long time. There is, in our, in our church, we follow something called the book of church order. It's, 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 uh, it's nothing magical. It's certainly not scripture. But here's a book of church order from the 1920s. And the, the practices that we follow today in our book of church order are very, very similar to the practices that they followed 100 years ago. Because our book of church order, the way that we discipline members, comes from out of the Scottish Presbyterian Church, and it's been practiced for several hundred years. And here is a book that is a manual to the members of Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina from 1838. And if you read the way that they practice church discipline, it's almost exactly the same wording that we have in our book of church order today. So what is that wording? How does it work? There are three ways that we discipline members of the church, and that I'm disciplined also. The first is when you are 
in a general sense, every one of us is disciplined every Sunday when we come to hear God's word or we're convicted by the Holy Spirit and we repent of our sins and we run to the table. That's a general kind of discipline and that's good for us. And there's a more formal kind of discipline when there is something that is brought to our attention from one of you that's divisive or there's a pattern in your life that, that, uh, that, that, you, that we see that is disruptive to your life, not for your good, then, then the elders of the church are encouraged to do the first thing it says in Matthew chapter 18. We go to you personally and we, we admonish you. We call you back. You know, we, we call you lest we have to check our own hearts lest we also be tempted. Galatians 6.1, right? So the first step is admonishment. We admonish you. We say, hey, heads up. Help us understand what's going on here. This doesn't look like you're walking in the ways of the world. And if you stiff arm us and you say, sorry, dude, not interested, and you're unrepentant about that, you show no sorrow, then the next step is that the elders would suspend you from the sacraments with tears. They would suspend you from the sacrament until you're repentant. And I don't know if you know what that means, but it, the elders are pleading with you and they are saying, don't come to the Lord's table because you are not in keeping with the beauty and the joy of Christ's church. You're not walking in holiness. And still, if you're saying, hey, thank you, buddy. No, thanks. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Then the third step is that not only are you barred from the sacraments, but you're then, if you remain unrepentant, excommunicated from the church. And our Book of Church Order has some very interesting language that I want you to hear when it comes time with tears, if that ever had to be the case, repronounce it over you. And if you've been in this church long enough, you know you've heard this before. In tears, you've heard this language before, and it's so hard. Whereas John Doe, this person, a member of this church has been sufficiently, has uh, by sufficient proof been convicted of the sin of whatever that sin is, and after much admonition and prayer has obstinately refused to hear the church and has manifested no evidence of repentance. Therefore, in the name and by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, the session of Trinity Presbyterian Church, do pronounce him to be excluded from the sacraments and cut off from the fellowship of the church. And then the book of church order says, and prayer should be made that by God's blessing, this solemn action of the session may issue in the repentance and the restoration of the offender and in the establishment of all true believers. That is, that we discipline them in order to win them back. It's never punitive. It's always restorative. Please hear me. It is never punitive. It is always restorative. But if we as elders don't know how to do that in a loving and kind way, there's plenty of articles. Go Google it where people have said, I was abused by my elders. Sometimes that abuse is very warranted and you should run from those churches. But when we exercise church discipline, the, the temptation is going to be, man, I'm going to go to the church down the street because they will never know. The problem is your Father in heaven knows. And the problem is that the church has called you back into restoration with us and through repentance and faith. Now, I'm going to get to the better part, though. It's not over. In the next chapter of the book of church order, right, every church has one of these ways that they practice Matthew 18. I'm just reading you out of our book of church order 
and something that's never been done in a sermon before, reading out of the book of church order. And it says, when an excommunicated person shall be so affected with his state as to be brought to repentance and to desire to be readmitted to the communion of the church, the session, having obtained evidence of his sincere repentance, shall restore him with joy. And this may be done in the presence of the session or the congregation as seems best to the session. And on the day of his appointed restoration, the minister shall call upon the excommunicated, excommunicated person and propose to him in the presence of the session or the congregation the following questions. Do you, from a deep sense of your great wickedness, of which we could say about all of our sin, yes, but particularly in this situation, of your great wickedness, freely confess your sin in thus rebelling against God and refusing to hear His church? And do you acknowledge that you have been in justice and mercy cut off from the communion of His church? To which they would answer, I do. And do you now voluntarily profess your sincere repentance and contrition for your sin and your obstinacy? And do you humbly ask the forgiveness of God and his church? I do. And do you sincerely promise through divine grace to live in humility and circumspection and to endeavor to adorn your life according to the holy doctrines of God our Savior? I do. Now, here's the best part. Then, this, then the minister, it says shall, in the same way he publicly or privately, whatever the context was, declared him excommunicated from the church, reads what has to be the most beautiful part of the book of church order. Whereas you, John Doe, having been shut out from the communion of the church, but now have manifested such repentance as satisfies the church in the name of the Lord Jesus and by his authority, we, the session of this church, do declare you absolved from the sentence of excommunication formerly pronounced against you, and we do restore you to the communion of the church, that you may be a partaker of all of the benefits of the Lord Jesus to your eternal salvation. Amen? It's beautiful. Now, why do I read all that to you? I, I read all that to you to say that when you take vows in this church, you vow to submit yourself to the courts of the church, just like I submit myself to the presbytery. If I did something out of line, I too am held accountable by the presbytery, those elders and pastors of all the churches in our region. And I praise God that from the beginning of this process, we have seen fruit as we have walked according to the marks of Christ's holy church, the preached word, the administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. That is how God intends to shape and mold us. And why must we do this? Yes, the church must deal with, I mean, the church must practice discipline. Yes, we do this in order to restore the wayward sinner. But we do this also because sin must be dealt with. Sin must be dealt with. And I'm exhibit A. So this is not the pastors looking, like we're not electrifying the fences. We're not looking for it. <laughs> no, but we're in together. And if we see you, by the time we hear about it, there ought to have been several conversations you've had with people in your community group about it, saying, hey, brother, like what's going on? That relationship, man, you need to cut that off and you need to repent and you need to go back to your spouse. You got to fight for her or him. What are you doing? 
So that by the time that we hear it, it should be the third or fourth time you've heard it. And a failure in this area is disastrous for the church. And Paul gives a very simple illustration, the the illustration of leaven. In the ancient world, they worked with bread every day. And Paul says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It was a saying. He says it again in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. He says the exact same thing. It was a common saying. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 22 times in the Bible, leaven uh, is used as sin or wickedness or evil. Over 51 times, unleavened is used to describe holiness and being set apart for the Lord. Leaven is like yeast. One little piece of yeast makes the whole dough all the dough rise. And so, remember in Egypt, remember in Egypt when, when um, they were to bake unleavened bread before the Passover? They did it in a hurry because they didn't have time for the leaven to make the yeast rise. And later on, the, the, uh, before Passover, and if you have some Jewish friends, you can see this today, they play a little game of hide and seek where the mother of the home will hide some leaven in their house. And if she doesn't hide it formally, then they just, they ransack the house to get rid of all the yeast in their house. They look for it everywhere. And they play a game with their children by hiding it under the cushion or the couches to simulate what happened in the Passover, where we were in a hurry. We had to bake bread without yeast. And so they go run through their house and they find the leaven. And it's a picture today of how we need to be separated from the world. We need to find the leaven because we're called to be holy unto the Lord. And here, Paul says that just like a little leaven leavens the whole lump, he immediately then says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Because what saved you was not getting rid of the leaven in the ancient Near East. What saved you was the blood sprinkled over the doorposts so that the angel of wrath would pass over those families. And so Paul is drawing the connection here. He's saying, what saves you? It's not your holiness. What saves you is Christ. He is our Passover lamb, as John says when he saw his cousin come over the horizon in John 1.29. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the one who was sacrificed for us so that we could ultimately be cleansed. And church discipline is not to stir up some kind of legalism in the church. Far from it. Church discipline is only the ricochet of grace in the life of the body of Christ because Christ, the perfect sacrificial lamb, was the one who took upon our leaven, who took upon our sins for us so that we might be able to walk in holiness and grace. Notice, too, that Paul says that you should separate yourself from them. Don't even eat with them. What does that mean? Does it mean that you should not be friends with them? No, it does not. Does it mean that you should never, you should duck around the grocery store aisle if you see them? No, it does not. That's weird. What it means is that you shouldn't come to the Lord's table with them and that you shouldn't have a relationship with them that pretends that everything is okay. You shouldn't have a relationship with them that ignores the elephant in the room. You should help call them back to repentance so they can come back and they can eat with you at the family meal of the Lord's table again. That's what you earnestly plead for them. And you do everything in your friendship's power to pray for them and yield and give your life so that they may see the truth of the grace of God. And some of you friends are doing that, I know. 
And the people for whom you're doing it may not be in this church. They may be floating out there somewhere, but you are pleading with them to come back. And I just want you to know that your Father in heaven hears those prayers. He's got every one of them. He knows. And why he is delayed in bringing them back, we don't yet know. But our arms are open wide to anyone who is repentant. And this table that Pastor Scott is going to lead us to in just a moment is another picture of us being set apart to be wholly devoted to Christ, not because of our own good works or our holiness, but because of what Christ has done for us so that we in our community groups ought to be in each other's lives, so that we in our neighborhoods, living with other people that go to this church, ought to love each other in such a way that we're calling them back to live according to his design for us. And it takes all of us. And it's messy, and it's not easy. What's most interesting to me is that in Paul's very first appeal in Corinth, when he heard from Chloe's people that there was a man sleeping with his father-in-law, that was the Twitter feed. That was what was the main news. But the first thing he talks about in 1 Corinthians is what? Is unity in the local church and your mutual care for one another. And then when he gets to the topic of sexual immorality, notice he holds back. He doesn't deal with it. He's going to deal with it, but he doesn't deal with it first. He deals with the church being a picture of the protective, nurturing, feeding environment in which you grow in your relationship with Jesus. That has to be our priority together. Nobody's looking at each other. We would just have a mirror staring at our own hearts. My gosh, we're all guilty. But we need to serve each other for the sake of the glory of God's name and the unity of this church. Sin tolerated in the church remains one of the major hindrances to the spread of the gospel and our own spiritual health. And when I sat in that booth at Pioneer Restaurant across from my brother, my brother said to me, little brother, there are two ways to wander from Jesus. One is by ignoring his commands and doing whatever you want. And those who stray that way are on the outside. They're out there for all to see. But the other way that you stray from Jesus is by being proud and sure that you're doing everything right. Like Jesus has done amazing things for you, but you're becoming proud. And in your arrogance, you're strained. And you are withering away, not outside, but you are withering away inside. I can see it. In there where nobody else can see. And I don't want my little brother to have few friends and be puffed up. Faithful are the wounds of a big brother. And the heart of Paul's rebuke is an urgent plea for a new communal self-awareness for us as a church trinity. And we should not mix the images of unleavened bread and say, oh, well, our community group just didn't go deep enough. Or, oh, we got a building we're trying to build. We got, we got distracted. No, we have got to keep our eyes centered on the gospel, and we've got to fight. And that is one reason why I commend to you as you come to the supper today to assess your own hearts and ask yourself, am I doing all I can to preserve the unity of this church? And am I walking in repentance in these areas of my life? And am I looking to Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, who gave his life for the sins of the world, to be my righteousness, or am I slowly infecting the church with a kind of pride and arrogance?
the crucified and risen Messiah lies at the heart of this new perspective. It's critically needed for the readers of the first century and those of us who belong to Trinity Presbyterian Church today. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to be students of your word, more than students, disciples, more than disciples, followers, wherever you lead us. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to demonstrate love to each other by loving each other enough to not just ignore sin, but to come to one another in love, not punitive, restorative grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would help this church to be faithful, to follow the commands of Scripture all the days of her life, and that you would equip us with men to lead this church to know, lead, protect, and feed her sheep, even when it's inconvenient and hard. And would you help each of us to start with us, our own hearts, even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.